Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are loved. I'm excited to share the word today. I'm excited to be here today, like always. I mean, I, don't, I feel like I don't have to announce that every Sunday, but I really am. And um, this word is stirring in my heart. I was able to work out this week with Adrian and Charlene a little bit at the yard. And, um, and, and they could testify, right, where, where in the middle of the workout, we, I was just like, God is saying this. God is saying that. And then they're like, yeah. And then she started talking to me about some stuff that God was showing her. And then that was awesome. But, but I won't speak about it. I'll let her um, speak it maybe, you know, one of these days, and, <laughs> and, and I was talking to them, and I was like, okay, I, gotta, I guess I have to keep preaching this on Sunday, and it, it was so beautiful that, you know, as you're, as you're there and you're exercising, God is also ministering to your, to your soul, Amen. and he's causing your soul to exercise and, and to lift up stuff, so it, it's just it's so amazing, so I'm, I'm ready to share this. Um, I'm going to come before the Lord in prayer real quick once again. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we honor you, Lord, and we thank you for the time of worship we had, for the expression of worship that we give unto you, Lord. Some of us dance, as we saw our sister dance today with the, with the red flags. What an expression that was from her. Maybe some of us here didn't understand that. But that was an expression of her love towards you, of worship towards you. Some of us sing, some of us play, some of us stay still, but we still love you. Some of us lift up our hands. I like to wave my hands back and forth because I'm not good at waving my hips, moving my hips, but Lord, I can wave my hands. I like to scream before your presence and just cry out to you. And everyone here in their expression of love and worship towards you, we just thank you for that. We honor you in all of it. And, Lord, even in your word, we pray that you would be honored, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would, that you would sit so heavy yet so loving over us today and, and that your word would do what your word does, which is speak its truth and um, invite us to freedom. We love you and we honor you. Be glorified in all of this. In Jesus' name we say, amen. amen. If you're taking notes, go ahead and write this down. We're going we're gonna to go ahead and, and, and stay with the second point from yesterday, um, from last Sunday. And it's titled, Right Where He Has Me. Right here. L- look at the person next to you, maybe nudge them and say, you're right where he has you. You're right where he has you. You're right where he has you. Last Sunday, we were discussing that the righteousness of God has been imputed to us has been imputed to us, to the believer, and it happened through faith in Christ. We have been credited in his righteousness through faith in Jesus. And we shared on Abraham and how he believed in God. And because Abraham believed in God, we see in Scripture that now it was credited to Abraham, it was accounted, it was imputed to him for righteousness. And, and what a beautiful uh, truth that is, as we read that in Romans 4.3. That be, oh, this is so crazy. All because of Jesus, all because of my faith in him, I receive something called righteousness. It can't be found in any other way, no loopholes around it. It's in and through Christ Jesus our Lord that my righteousness is found. Man, makes it so easy. Makes it so much simpler. And we shared on that. Think about how easy that is. In the Old Testament, you had to do a bunch of rituals and rules and laws, a lot of sacrifices. You, You guys understand what I'm saying? Today it's just like... In Jesus, <laughs> through Jesus, I received this. Man, thank you for being the greater law. Thank you, Lord, for, 
for, for, for being that for us. Wow. So, so now we say we are in right standing before God. We're in right standing before God. We discussed two weeks ago um, in Romans 4, 23 and 24. I'll read it to you. It says, and when God counted Abraham as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And we said that, man, Abraham's story, Abraham's life, the reason why it was written, it wasn't just to testify of Abraham, but it was written and told even for us, for our benefit, so that just like Abraham, if we can believe in Jesus Christ, who the Lord raised up from the dead, we too could be the righteousness of God. And I'm hoping this, as we get through the introduction here, I'm hoping that we understand and we are learning that God's initial desire for all of us is to be in him. God's initial desire is for all of us to be in him. In where? In him. Everyone say in him. Good. In him. That's in where we receive his righteousness and live from a place in faithful right standing before God. I live only, 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 the only place where I can live in faithful right standing before the Lord. Guess what the answer is? In him. In him is the only place where I can have faithful right standing before the Lord. How many of you have, have tried to have faithful right standing before the Lord outside of him and it didn't go well? It does, it does, it, you can't. It's in him where I have faithful right standing. I don't believe that his heart for humanity, that the Lord's heart for humanity is for us to be crooked, perverse, broken, destroyed, lost, sick, and sin. There is no way that that is the heart of God. There is no way that scripture teaches us that his heart for humanity is to keep us or to have us crooked. To have us perverse, to have us broken, to have us destroyed, to have us lost, and to have us sick in sin. There is, that is not God's heart. If you think that's God's heart, we definitely need to sit down and have a conversation. That's not God's heart for us. Amen? I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 71, verse 19 through 21. Look what he says. He says, your righteousness, O God, it reaches to the highest heavens. You have done such wonderful things. Who can compare with you, O God? For you have allowed me to suffer much hardship. And Been there? But you will restore me to life again and lift me up from the depths of the earth. And you will restore me to even greater honor and comfort me once again. That's a powerful passage there. And, and I say this, and I don't say this lightly. Ready? I believe that this is the proper context to the heart of God. I believe this is proper context to the heart of God. To restore us, to give us life, to lift us up, to give us great honor, and to comfort us yet again. There is no way that if you feel you're uncomforted here, if that's even a word, whatever, if you feel like you're in some sort of destruction here, some sort of pain here, in some sort of dark place, in some sort of miry clay, there is no way that if you come to in Christ, that's exactly in Christ where he wants to keep you. I actually believe it's totally opposite. I believe that he actually wants to lift you up from the miry clay, set you up on eagle's wings, causing you to soar again. Like, I believe what the scripture says. And, and I don't think it's to keep you. If, you. if you're in here today with a perverse mind, I don't believe it's to, for you to walk out of here with the same perverse mind. I believe that, yeah, you walk in with the perverse mind, but in Christ, that perverse mind should be free. I think that, I, and I see in Scripture that that's the heart of God in a whole. It's to give us life. It's to give great honor. It's to comfort us again. It's the righteousness of God. I want to make all your wrongs right in faith, in Christ. That's what it, 
That's what Romans teaches us. That's what scripture teaches us. And last week, many of us confessed many wrongs have been made right in Christ. And in that truth, there is no condemnation. In that truth, we believe that there is a forgiveness that is still covering and that is still flowing. There is a, there, we don't live beaten and condemned. You, you may live beaten and condemned. You, you may live and put your head under your pillow and put yourself in a dark place because you feel like the sin that you just committed is um, too far from God or has separated you too far from God. But when you read the scripture and you see it for what it's worth, no, that right there can be used to bring you even closer to God. Because he doesn't want to condemn us. But that through him, this world might be saved. Amen? It's the righteousness of God. Let me read to you some definitions of unrighteousness. Check this out. It does not mean upright. It's not upright and it's not virtuous. Obviously, it's wicked, sinful, evil, unfair, or unjust. Unrighteous is all these things. To be a, a, a wicked and sinful, evil, unfair, unjust, someone who is not upright or virtuous. This is everything that God is not and everything that Satan is. It's everything that the enemy is and everything that God is not. You could write down some notes and, and I ask you this question. Have you ever considered this? Have you ever considered this? That the unrighteous enemy, because now we, we could define the enemy as unrighteous, Correct? The unrighteous enemy that stands before us on numerous occasions. Consider this. He uses strategic tools in your life to stop you, to hinder you from receiving the righteousness of God. I, I really want you to think about that for a moment. Because if we, I mean, oh man, you're going to preach about Satan. Well, the Bible does say that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities and the rulers of this earth. He says that he has fiery darts and schemes from the devil that are out to... So, so we can't deny some of those scriptures. Believe in God and glory and Jesus and angels and all these great things and do not believe in Satan and demons and fallen angels and hell and so on and so forth. There, there is a truth in this stuff. So, so if we recognize that there is a constant battle, not just with our flesh, but also with an enemy or enemies that come before us, have you ever considered that on numerous occasions he's using strategic tools in your life to stop you from living and receiving God's righteousness? See, he doesn't want you to receive or live in the righteousness of God. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to be in right standing. He wants you to be in wrong standing. So he'll do whatever he can so that you don't receive the righteousness of God or live in the righteousness of God. But he wants you to be in a place where you're in constant mental defeat. Where you're in constant mental defeat. I really want you to pause on that for a moment. I really want you to concentrate on that. Have you found yourself at a place where it's hard for you to live in the righteousness, in the goodness, in the wrong made right of God because you live in this constant place of mental defeat, mentally defeated, where you think yourself separated from God? Here it is. And this is what I want you to know. That just because you think yourself as something, it doesn't mean that you are it. You could think yourself as something as much as you want and as long as you want. But I don't believe for one that the author and the finisher of your life has described you to be that as is. Now you might choose that for yourself because we know what scripture says about how a man thinks. But we'll get into that passage. But, but, but just because you think something of yourself or as yourself as something, it doesn't mean that you are it. 
And, and what does the enemy do? That might be a tool to get into your mind so you could see, think yourself different, see yourself different, and from there start to live out your life separated from God. Just because you think yourself as something, it doesn't mean that God sees you as it. It's funny because it doesn't mean that others even see you as it. You know what I'm talking about, that mental battle when you walk into a room and people are actually whispering to one another and all they did was talk about yesterday's game. But because you're carrying something and you walk into that room, you think in your mind that it's about you. Because you live with that condemnation pain. <gasps> I am so like, No. If you were to say, what were you just saying? You were talking about me, right? Like, No, I just I whispered, did you see the game yesterday? <laughs> but we do that. We walk into a room, and because the enemy has, men, has messed up with our minds so much, we start believing things, and we twist the stuff that's happening before us. That, that person, for sure, look what they're saying. And they're like, no. Nah. It had nothing to do with what you're thinking about yourself or what you're saying. And the enemy has a way of playing with our minds. I wrote this down. You might feel that you are so far from God, but that might be the place where God may have been the closest he's ever been with you and to you. That might have been the closest that God's been. You, you have been the farthest, but because of that, I've been the closest to keep you. Some of you, maybe you don't have testimonies to show that, but some of you, you know what I'm talking about. And the enemy knows that. Psalm 23, 7 is the verse that I quoted just a moment ago. For it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. For a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So just because you might think yourself, think of yourself, which causes now to see yourself as if that's who you are, it doesn't mean that that's God's reality for you or of you. So God speaks through Isaiah. This is so important. Through Isaiah, the same thing that he speaks to Samuel when Samuel sees David for the first time. Let's take a field trip when Samuel saw David for the first time. He sees David for the first time. He has his ram's horn filled with oil to anoint the next king. And we know the story. David's father, Jesse, comes before his Samuel. And he presents every single one of his sons. But one son is missing. And there's a, and I, how many times have we shared here that it's a reason why he's missing? No one wants to present David as the next king. Why? Because he's the lowliest position of mankind. What is that? A shepherd. Shepherds were not something that you wanted to put of high honor and high regards. Shepherd was actually a lowly position. Shepherd was actually something that you did not want to boast about. I'm a shepherd. That's what I do during the weekday. No, that's something that you want to keep hidden. It's something that you live with sheep. You don't even live in your father's house. Look how serious this is that all seven, all the brothers were presented before Jesse and he was left out because he wasn't even considered as one because he's just a shepherd. He lives with the wild out there. And I love that God loves the wild. I love that he loves the wild. I love that. While the, while the Pharisees and the religious people are trying to bring people into the temple, God's like, I'm trying to draw people out to the wild because there's a man called John the Baptist over there. Religion was like, come to this beautiful fabricate. Look at this building. And he's like, go over there. There's a man eating grasshoppers, <laughs> half naked, with camels here. He's got a message for you that these Pharisees will never give you. I, I love that. I love that stuff, you know. Okay, but that's not. So, so God speaks to Isaiah what, what Samuel goes through when he sees David. I had, a little, I had a little play go on in my mind when I was doing this. 
And I think that Samuel did something like this. I think he says something like this. When David starts to walk up to him because none of the other brothers are the king, and, and he says there's one more missing, he says, yeah, but you don't want to see him. Bring him here anyways. And they ring the bell, and David starts walking from the wild to the house to pre uh, present himself before Samuel. I could just picture Samuel saying, how is, look what I wrote down here, how is this young, red-headed little boy, he's cute though, be able to be the next king of Israel. They're going to smash him. They're going to destroy him. He'll never be able. You could just picture this as Samuel's thoughts. He'll never be able to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the infamous King Saul. Saul was infamous, man. He'll never be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with King Saul. And definitely, he'll never go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the giants of this land. They're, they're going, Saul is going, they're going to kill this little, cute little red-headed shepherd little boy. It's not going to work for him. And I could almost, I, I feel that because what God replies back to Samuel, yeah, I'm glad you see him like that, but I don't know if you know I see him differently. And I, I could almost see how God, in reply to Samuel's inner thoughts, God says this, I'm glad that you think of him in such a way, which causes you to see him in such a way, but my thoughts and my vision towards him are contrary to yours. This young man is going to build a nation and a kingdom more powerful than anyone would ever be able to. This young man will fight in a manner no man will ever be able to fight in after him. This young man will know my heart like no one has ever known it. This young man will be the greatest king that will ever be spoken of in Israel for millenniums after him. This young man will bring forth a lineage that will lead to a king whose rule is eternal, who will have no end. That's who this young man is. So when, when one man looks at him and says, what good could come out of him? God says, uh -huh, my son Jesus who's sitting right now next to me on the throne is going to come from him. So you better get your thoughts and your mind and your feelings towards him and put them back inside of you. Because that's not what I think and what I feel and what I see in that young man that's walking from the wild to your presence. Get your ram's horn anointed over his head because from that man's blood is going to come, man, the blood of my Gentile children are going to receive salvation through Jesus Christ, the eternal living king that will come from David. I mean, something deeper is going to come from him. What, what was it that happened? Isaiah 55 happened even in, in this man's life, Samuel. What happened? For my thoughts, verse 89, Isaiah 55, are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. My ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. How many of you could say thank you that your thoughts are greater than my thoughts, that your ways are greater than my ways, because, man, I was going to be a mess. It wasn't going to end good. And, and God gives us this. I, 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 I knew you thought or you figured that you, we've done that. Oh, that, that, that family member? Oh, I've, I was a teacher. One of the worst things that teachers do. That one's going to be a loser forever. Wow, be careful. I, I didn't do that. <laughs> but what I'm trying to tell you is teachers do that. They talk in the teacher's lounge. What did he do now in your class? So by third period, you know already what he did in first and second period because you had a little meeting and the teacher down in the donut. But, but what we do is we, 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 we look at someone and we automatically just categorize them. That guy, that girl, them, that group, they're going to stink forever. There is no hope for them. And then next thing you know, I get these little emails. There's one kid, I'll, email, I'll, I'll keep him nameless because there's some students of mine that are here and they know him. But he writes me an email not that long ago. And he was one that said, you know, because sometimes the flesh comes in and he's like, man, you know, Sometimes it'll be cool, like if teachers and students could just go at it a little bit just for fun. And, 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 but a lot of those kids will beat me up. They're big, but, but who cares? Maybe just one knee in the ribs or something. But, you know, you, so you're like, this kid drives me crazy. 
And the kid that drives you crazy writes you an email later on and says, hey, I'm actually being called to be in the mission, the mission field and I'm going on a missionary trip. I might stay there. And I wanted to know if you or your church would love to donate to this missions that I'm on. I feel like God is calling me to this and I'm reading this and I had to go back again and read it again and back again and read it and say, is this it? I clicked on the link to make sure it was his face. I went to his profile. I saw all his pictures. I said, I want to see if he doesn't want to make money. And I'm seeing every single post. It's biblical. There's verses. It's him involved in the ministry of God. And I'm like, oh my God, the kid that I thought that was driving me nuts is sending me an email. Can you support me to go to the mission field? I wanted to click him right away and say, no, no, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you, but you better be careful because his ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. You might think that someone is down and under, but God says, watch when I bring him up and above and you'll see the nation that he'll lead and the ministry that he'll have and you'll see the people that he'll lead. Though you saw him like a shepherd in the field and you saw him as no hope, He's just a shepherd. He's just useless. He's just scrawny. He's good looking though, but there's nothing good working out for him. And God says, but that's the one that I want. That's the one that I choose. That's the one that you anoint with oil. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Though you may feel something and think some way about yourself and see yourself as some way or someone else, it does not mean that's how I think of it, the Lord says. That's not how I feel about it. You've ever felt something about something? You've ever felt something about someone? Be very careful when, when you start to voice what you feel because it might not be aligned with how God feels about him, her, yourself. Man, God might, you might talk bad about him, which you never do. I know you love him. But you better be very careful because God is passionately in love with this young man. So he, he'll hear the thoughts that come out of you, your mouth. In wordage and, and, and even the ones about yourself when you look at yourself and you begin to think as yourself as something. And God looks at you and says, no, son, my thoughts for you are so different. My ways for you are so different. Why do you think that way? It does not mean that's how I think and feel and see you for myself. What I think of you and I see for you is different than what you may currently be thinking and feeling of yourself. And seeing of yourself. Thank you, Lord. Because you would be amazed how many times I've stared at the mirror and I've said, what a disaster. What a disaster. What? I should just give up. And God says, who are you talking to? It's not my, that's not what I say. C come on, think about that. Think about your life where you're at right now. You're such a disaster. And your point? What's your point? You might be exactly where God has you today. To take you to the place where he wants you. Come on, think about that for a moment. You are where I need you, he tells you. You are where I want you. You are where I have you. What do you tell a man like Job? Seriously, what do you tell a man like Job? If you've never studied the, the story of Job in the Bible, you should. But what do you tell a man like Job? I thank you, Lord, that I never had to pastor or confront or be a friend of Job. What, what do you tell a man like Job? Let me tell you a little bit about Job. Scripture says that he was a man of complete integrity. Job was an upright man, blameless, and one who feared God and shunned evil. How many of you would say that's a good characteristic? That's a good man right there. So one day Satan is born. The accuser is born. He stands before when the sons of God come to present themselves. Satan comes before him and he's like, what are you doing here? Accuser. And he says, well, I'm kind of bored, you know. And what does God tell the enemy about his servant Job? He says this, 
Listen to God's description of Job. My goodness, can you imagine if God said this about you? There is no one like him on the earth. It's almost like what Jesus said about John the Baptist. No greater man has been born from a woman than John the Baptist. Yeah, I mean, there's, I looked upon the earth, God said, and no one has caught my eye like Job. So, so what happens next? Nothing for sure. Job is victorious. Job is it. No, um, he's threatened. He's threatened, and, and the Lord allows the enemy to threaten him. And it's not the first time we see this. Remember last week? If you were here last week, you remember it, when the Lord comes up to Peter and says, Pete, he's like, what is it, Lord? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to cast out? What demon? Who do you want me to preach to? Who do you want me to baptize? Huh? 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 He's like, no. Um, Satan has asked to um, sift you as wheat, and I'm going to let him do it. <laughs> I thought you had my back. <laughs> yeah, but I'm going to let him shake you. I'm gonna, have you ever been shaken? I'm going to let him do it. Because, you know, sometimes churches and people and family have to be shaken. Because sometimes if it's not shaken, you'll never know what falls from the tree. Sometimes things grow on the tree or things inhabit themselves on the trees. And you don't want those things on those trees. Because they start eating from the fruit of that tree. And they start poisoning the good that grows from that tree. So he's got to shake it a little bit so that the raccoons can start falling off. So he shakes things off and people start falling. He shakes things off and friends. and You start confronting things. Like, Whoa, thank God for this. But in the moment of the shaking, it's horrible. And he's like, Peter, I'm gonna, he's asked to sift you as we, but there's victory. Watch this. When you come out of it, strengthen your brothers. <laughs> what does that mean to Peter? You're good. You're going to make it. You're good. And when you're good, strengthen the ones that are also shaken but are not making it through. Because now you have a testimony that they're exactly where I have them. Because look what's, what's happened to you. And I mean, oh, that story, I don't want to get into that story because that's a whole other preacher. But, but that's so powerful. And now here is Job. He's being shaken. He's being sifted as wheat. So, so remember, guys, seriously, he's upright, shuns evil, fears God, complete, complete integrity, um, blameless, and the Lord allows the enemy to threaten him, and four messengers come running to him. One day, one day, in a one moment, four messengers come to him. The first messenger runs to him and says, some of the enemies, they came in and they stole all your animals. Remember, that was, livestock was money. And they killed all your employees. And I am the only one who escaped to tell you. As that man was finishing his sentences, another man comes in and says, excuse me. And he's like, wait, what? The second man says, a fire burned all your sheep and burned up all your shepherds. And I'm the only one that escaped. And he's like, and as he's saying this, as I'm the only one, another man comes in and says, excuse me. And he goes, give me a second, give me a second. What is it? The third person comes up to him and says, some Chaldeans, some enemies have stolen your camels. They've killed your servants. And I'm the only one that has escaped. To and as he's finishing his sentence, he's like, another guy comes in the room and says, wait, excuse me, can I tell you something? He's like, what is it now? When the fourth person comes in, here it is, ready? Your sons and your daughters, they were feasting in their oldest brother's house. They were having dinner there. And suddenly there was a powerful wind and it swept them in the wilderness and it hit the house on every single one of its sides. The house collapsed on all your kids. All your children are dead and I'm the only one. I'm the only one that survived and escaped to tell you. Can you imagine being Job on that moment? All my money is gone. All my riches are gone. All my children are gone, which is probably the fourth is the, the, the worst one. Everything's gone. All my livelihood is gone. My family is gone. Did, she t did he take my wife? <laughs> Didn't take his wife, but took his four kids, seven kids. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against asking for it. But there's a story. There's a story between the wife and him. See, I want to get into this for a moment. Because you, you read stories like this. Like, oh, it wasn't a little bit of sheep. It probably was just a little bit of sheep. It was probably a little bit of camels. It was probably some employees. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was like two children. <laughs> no. Job 1, 2, and 3 says, 
He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep. He had 3,000 camels. He had 500 teams of oxen. He had 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. All of that in one moment was taken away from him. And then we come to Job, right, because we're Christians. And we love God and stuff like that, and we're faithful to the Lord, right? So we come to Job, and what do we say to Job? We come and we say, you are where he needs you. You are where he wants you. Job, with a smile on your face, and you are where he has you. How do you think Job takes that? Can you imagine telling Job on that day, you are where he needs you, you are where he wants you, you are where he has you. And I'm going to ask Job a question now. If I could, God, if you could just allow heavens to open and let me talk to Job. But, but think about this for a moment. Job, think about this. Job, the unrighteous, wicked, sinful, evil, unfair, unjust enemy may have just, been, may have just stood before you and used strategic tools in your life to stop you, to hinder you from reaching and living in the righteousness that God had for you. Job, I get that all your money and all your livelihood and all your children are gone. But, but, but Job, if, if the enemy can just get before you and cause you to see yourself as hopeless, and you could see God as, oh, his God is unfair and God is treating me evil for allowing all this stuff to... How many of you, do not raise your hand, have something has happened to you and you felt like that was just unfair. That's not right that God allowed that. And we've done that. And we've confessed that maybe before the Lord. And, and, and we could just take him to a place. If Satan could just take Job to a place where he'd be in constant mental defeat. I'm not just mad that all my children are dead and my house is gone and my riches are gone. But I'm so mad that God would even allow this to happen. Now he's bitter towards God. And it starts this mental battle in Job's mind. That's exactly the tools that the enemy wants to use to destroy Job. Where he could have Job start thinking of himself as separated from God. I'm not going to serve I'm not going to serve God if he allows things like that to happen. If you serve such a good God, why did he allow that hurricane to come? Come on, we've been told that by our friends and family members and coworkers. If God is so good, why did he allow tsunamis? And if God is so good, why is there poverty in the world? And if God, we, we hear those ignorant questions. Those are good questions. And they're good conversations to start having. And if, and if Satan could just stand before Job and get Job to think and see himself as hopeless and God is unfair and evil for allowing this to happen, then he would take him to a place where Job would be in constant mental defeat, where he could have Job start thinking of himself as separated from God, where Job can no longer hear words like this from God. Job, do you love me? Like he tells Peter in the New Testament. Job, Job, you are where I have you. Well, you can't hear that anymore from God. But I want you to look at Job, and I want you to see Job's response towards God's righteousness. Chapter 1, verse 20 to 22. When Job, when the fourth messenger comes and tells Job, your children are dead, it says in verse 20, Job stood up, tore his robe in grief, he shaved his head, fell to the ground to worship. Not to complain, but to worship. And he said, I came naked from my mother's womb. I will be naked when I leave. And the Lord has given and he also takes away. Praise the name of the Lord. And in all of this, verse 22, Job did not sin by blaming God. Let's, take a, some, let's just travel through scripture. We could say the same thing for Ruth. Ruth lost her husband. That's not fair. I lost my husband. Her sister-in-law, both brothers were out and they both died. And now we have Ruth and her sister-in-law mourning their husband's death. But she remains faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi. 
and, and to Naomi's God. And she serves Naomi and serves God. And you know what God had for her? She had a Boaz for her waiting for her, continuing the lineage that one day eventually would lead to Jesus. She didn't quit. We could continue to go on and talk about, we could talk about Esther. We could say the same thing for Esther. She was chosen by a long list of beautiful women by King Xerxes. And God uses her at that exact moment to save the Israelite people when they were all going to be killed. She was exactly where he wanted her. Story after story, God is using strange circumstances. Story after story, we see that he uses people to seem hopeless, hopeless individuals to accomplish a much greater purpose. How many of you are in a hopeless situation or feel as a hopeless individual or you know a hopeless situation or you know a hopeless individual and it might be for the grand purpose for God's glory? But we don't see it like that. We don't see it like that. How about if you could do this, ready? If you could just see the enemy for who he is and what he does. He's unrighteous, he's wicked, he's unfair, he's evil, he's unjust. He's an accuser, he's a father of all lies, he plots, he schemes, he attacks. Yes or no? He's all those things and more. But how about if we learn to take the tools that the enemy meant to use to destroy us and turn it around on the enemy and use it to destroy him? That's important. And here is my message right now. Don't lose this. So when the enemy plans to kill all of my people, Esther, I rise up. And I use his own plan against him to kill the enemy and what? And to save my people. So, so when Ruth feels broken, lonely, lost, one who doesn't belong, because if you study the story of Ruth, she feels like she does not belong anymore, just like the sister-in-law feels. She holds on, takes those things that could have destroyed her, and uses them. If you study the life of Ruth, it, you, she uses them to unite herself even deeper and more to her mother-in-law and to her mother-in-law's God. I'm not going to leave you, and I'm not going to leave your God. Wherever you go, I'm going to go, she tells her. She had two sons. Listen to me. Naomi had two sons. Naomi had two sons. Orpah was one daughter. Orpah, when, she, when Naomi says, just go back home, the Bible says that this daughter-in-law kisses Naomi goodbye and went back to her people and to their gods. When she turns and she sees Ruth, Ruth says, I'm staying with you, and I'm going to serve alongside you, and I'm going to serve the God that you serve. I've seen he's real. I know my my sister-in-law left you, but this one right here, I'm going to become your daughter. I'm not going anywhere. And she took mothership from her. And she said, I want to be your daughter. I want to learn what you have to teach me. Ruth 1.16, Ruth tells her, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will become my people, and your God will be my God. That confession, you know what it does? Boaz is waiting for her and finds favor in her, marries her. Ruth kings come from Ruth, kings like David and kings like Solomon. They come from Ruth. Kings like Jesus comes from Ruth. I want you to know right now that you are exactly where he has you. Job used the tool meant to destroy him to draw him closer to God. He overcame it with faith, and the Lord counted it as righteousness to Job as well. I'm wondering if there are tools being used against you that you can just Come before the enemy and turn it around and use it against him. Let me give you some examples. Maybe there's a death that you could relate to. And the death is a tool that is used to destroy you. Maybe it's a weakness. It's a weakness that you might even be ashamed of. And God now wants to use that weakness against the enemy to destroy him. Maybe it's a hurt. Maybe it's an experience. Like I I think about when I meet with families and they're like, we've gone through a lot as a family. What do you mean, you know, we've gone through a lot, trust me. Uh, 
He's been unfaithful. She's been unfaithful. We've gone through hell. This has been hard. And then now they're at a different place. Like, but now God is using our story to touch many other marriages. And you're like, that stuff is crazy. Because maybe it's an experience you went through. Maybe the enemy is using a disability that has been given to you. A disability that has been spoken of. And he's used it to destroy your life. I bolded this in my notes and I want to say this. Maybe it's the very thing that you pray for the most. That thing that you pray the most for. Can that right there be turned and used to destroy the destructive pattern that the enemy has used against you throughout all these years? When we do this... Listen to what I wrote here because I'm going to jump into something. When we do this, we're relieving the enemy from a weapon. We're relieving the enemy from the weapon, maybe, that is constantly thrown to decimate us. I think about 8 Mile, man. Forgive me for, for getting carnal for a moment. But it's true. He was in a battle, and he goes, this guy's going to beat me. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to use the tools that the, he's going to use to destroy me. I'm going to switch it on him. And when the other guy was turned was to destroy him, he couldn't say nothing because that man just turned it around. And, and, and I almost want to do that with the enemy. Everything that you're going to say about me, I'm going to turn it around. And I'm going to tell you everything that God says about me. So when you get the mic, I want to see if you could battle back. And the enemy just gets stuck. Like, and I thought about that because I come from a hip-hop background, but whatever. <laughs> when we do this, we're relieving the enemy from decimating us. Listen to this. Let's get him to shoot blanks because we're disarming his weaponry. That now our weakness becomes our story. This is so good. That now our weakness becomes our story in God's great message to be a strength for someone else. So there are people here that struggle with some very serious weaknesses or some very serious struggles in your life. But have you ever considered that that struggle and that weakness could actually be used to set someone else free? And what you thought was out to destroy you, you could turn it around on the enemy and actually use it to build the kingdom of God. My Lord. You mean to... My God. You mean to tell me that, that I don't have to, you mean to tell me that I don't have to carry this anymore? You mean to tell me I don't have to carry this stuff on my back no more? I don't have to be weighed by it anymore? You, you mean to tell me that I don't have to live my life with this constant struggle and this constant weakness, thinking that it's separating me from God, that I could actually use the monkey on my back and turn it around on the devil, and I could use it now to shame him and to win more for the kingdom of God, establish truth in what's been spoken to me as lies? Think about that for a moment. What this book bag might mean to you. I want you to understand that because maybe it's our disability, ready? Our disability now gives someone now the courage to have the ability. Some of the greatest moments of my life when I stand face to face with someone with a disability and they teach me something and I get humbled and have to get to my knees and say, if that young person could do it, if that man could do it, if that woman could do it, what am I complaining about? When that person in their disability gives me the ability. Maybe, maybe the thing, the tool that the enemy has used to destroy you, you could do it to, to actually destroy him and, and, and strengthen yourself. Maybe it's the related death that can ignite someone else to experience life. Maybe it's the hurt that was carried and prayed for that can be someone else's path to love again, find peace, or even be comforted again. How about if we turn the weapons against him and we cease from seeing or thinking of ourselves as separated from God and see it as this. This will bring me closer to God and this will bring many others closer to God. What are you going through? you got to be kidding me. You struggle with that too. Dude, let me open up my bag and show you what God has done. And now that which I carried, which was a sickness to me, now becomes the tool that I use against the enemy to be the healing for you. Can you imagine that if we begin to function like that? 
If we get close enough to Goliath with a slingshot in our hand and say, today, the devil's, um, today God's going to give me your head, and how are you going to do that if you just have a slingshot? Because I'm going to get so close to you. I'm going to get so close to you. I mean, I really want you to think about that. When, when he comes in with a slingshot and Goliath says, what are you, you fool? He begins to mock young David. And David runs at him. He says, I'm going to get so close to you that your head today will be mine. And Goliath laughs at him and says, and how are you going to do that? Well, there's a mental game for the enemy. Because now the enemy is about to fight David. He's like, how is he going to do it? How, how does he actually think he's going to cut my head off? Well, we know the answer. I'm going to get so close to you that I'm eventually going to take the same sword that you were going to use to destroy me, and I'm going to take it from your weaponry, and I'm going to destroy you with it. That's a powerful statement. That's a power. When he tells the enemy, God's going to give me your head, we know that the enemy thinks that's impossible. You have nothing there to sever my head. And what David was saying is, I'm going to sever your head with the same tool that you were going to use to sever my head. That's powerful. That, that's mighty because, because sometimes, sometimes I get that it says to flee from the enemy. And stuff like that. But I do believe that there are many occasions in the Bible um, that when we find strength to overcome the enemy, that we actually have to confront him at times. And um, to confront him is not to um, begin to be empowered by him again. But to confront him is, okay, finally, I'll take the weapons now that you've been using against me and finally conquer this enemy. It's not... To flee, flee from it in the point of weakness, but in the point of strength, I mean, I'm telling you that it could be something totally different for you. Could this be related to God's perpetual covenant? And I want to make sure I use this in context. When he speaks to the Jerusalemites and he talks to them about a covenant of peace, perpetual covenant of peace uh, through the prophet Isaiah in 5417, when he says words like this in its context for Jerusalem, when he says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, what does that mean for the Jerusalemite when he hears that? Because right around now, there are enemies with mighty weapons all around me that are going to prosper. But God says, no, not necessarily. Not if you're in the right standing, you're exactly where I have you. And you use that weapon against the enemy. In Job chapter 42, you know what happens at the end of Job's life? Verses 12, I'm going to read 12 to 17. Check this out. This is at the end of Job's life. His three, brother, his three best friends are destroying him. You must have sinned. His wife comes up to him. That's why I mentioned the wife earlier and says, come on, curse your God already and just die. Look what Job says. So the Lord blesses Job in the second half of his life. Everyone say there's a second half. <laughs> there is a grace. There is a chance. There is a forgiveness. There is a second half of his life, even more than in the beginning. For now, remember he had 7,000 sheep? Watch this. He has 14,000 sheep. No longer does he have 3,000 camels. He has 6,000 camels. Not only does he have 500 oxen, now he has 1,000 teams of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And he also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. And he named the first daughter Jemima. Jemima. Jemima is a totally different person. And the second, <laughs> I put her on pancakes. But <laughs> let's just go to 15, huh? And in all of the lands, no woman were as lovely as the daughters of Job, and their father <laughs> and their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Look at verse 16 and 17. This is so beautiful. Job lived 140 years after that. God gave him life. Living to see what? Four generations of his children and his grandchildren. But the best verse is this one, 17. And he died. But look what happens. An old man who had lived long, and he was full of life. 
The New King James says, full of days. That's, that's a rich place. A place where fullness for the rest of his life was found. That, whether you're rich or poor, whether sickness, health, there is a fullness inside your soul for the rest of How many of you like that? Seriously, how many of you go to bed at night, put your head on your pillow, but you did not have a full day? Because the enemy has been using weapons against you to destroy you. So you're tormented. How many of you toss and turn? How many of you, like me so many times, <gasps> are constantly breathing heavy that my wife has to look at me and says, why are you breathing heavy? Why are you shaking all the time? How many of you are shaking all the time? And you just got to get to a place where you put yourself on the, your head on your pillow and you could say, oh, I'm in, I, have, I have the fullness of days. Because what did Job do in his life? He used the tools that the enemy meant to destroy him. And he says, I'm not going to let him come to me. See, the greatest of all of this wasn't all the blessings, wasn't the sheep, wasn't the oxen. He lived a full life. In 930 Huddle, I talked about Rahab. What does God use for Rahab? He uses her tool, her instrument. What's her instrument that Abraham was really good at? Rahab was a prostitute in the Old Testament, and she was really good at hiding men. What does Rahab do? She hides two of God's servants, two of God's spies, so that they will... Oh, my God, what you thought you were going to use for evil, I'm going to switch it around, and I'm going to use it now for good. So there's a woman that some believe was that prostitute, right, that she used that oil to lure men into her, and what does she do? Oh, what you used, what you used to cologne yourself with to bring men to you, now I'm going to use it for good, and you're going to put it at the feet of my son. I mean, there's so many stories like this. You could think about Joseph from almost being murdered, from thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, um, um, spoken about him raping, a false claim of him raping um, part of his wife, and then him thrown into prison, then finally him at the right hand of Pharaoh. He's the prime minister of Egypt. Think about that for a moment. He uses the instrument. Joseph, you're right where I want you. You're right where I want you. He uses David to stand against Goliath. David, and I won't read the whole story I was going to, but I will just read verse 46. It says, this day, David tells Goliath, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you, and I will take your head from you. Guys, stop thinking that this is King David yet. This is not King David yet, yet he is fully King David already. Think about this for a moment. And this day I will give you the carcass of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. What does he do? Hits him in the head, takes off his sword, cuts off his head. And you know what David does? He goes on a field trip with that head and he shows off Goliath's head as he takes it back. He doesn't just leave the head there. He takes it back. It was a sign of victory. And you could almost picture David walking into town with Goliath's head as he's walking into Jerusalem. The enemy is no more. How'd you do it? Oh, I used his own, his own sword. David ran. He stood over the Philistine, took his sword in verse 51, drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his own head. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and I feel like this might be a good place to end. I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 8 with me for a moment as we've kind of went all over scripture here. Let's stop on Luke 8. I'm going to read this story. Oh, Lord, may this speak to us. <clears throat> Let's go to Luke 8. And you put your eyes there on um, verse 43. 
I'm not sure they'll give me an amen. Hmm. All right, check this out. Luke 8, 43 says, A woman in the crowd, check this out, guys. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She could find no cure. She, she had a flow of blood for 12 years. Scripture says that she spent all her money, all her livelihood on physicians, and she could not be healed by anything. Another translation says it this way. She suffered many things from physicians. So, so not only did the physicians, she spent her money on them, but many of the physicians made her even worse. And she spent all that she had and was no better, but she rather grew worse. And she says this, if only I may touch his clothes, I will be made well. Look at verse 44. So she comes from behind and she touches the border of his garment. And immediately it says the flow of blood stopped. As Jesus is walking, he says, right, who touched me? Everyone denies it. Peter and those who were with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, but yet you say who touched me? When Jesus walked into a city, this probably was not just 5 or 15, 20 or 50 people. We're talking about hundreds if even thousands of people around Jesus. Thousands of people. So those are hundreds and hundreds of hands touching him as he's walking. Many people reach out to touch him. But one person touches him in, a, in such a manner that Jesus stops in his track and he says, who touches me? And Peter says, everyone, everyone has touched you. Look at verse 46. But Jesus says, somebody, okay, I, oh man. See, everyone has touched me, but somebody touched me. And I perceived that there was power that left from me. Power came out from me. Verse 47. So when the woman saw that she was not hidden, what, was, what does that mean? She was exposed. She knew that he knew that she touched him. It says she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to Jesus in the presence of all the people the reason that she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. Verse 48. So good. He looks at her and says, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Can I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really pause for a moment. What touched her? Who touched him? Who touched him? The woman touched his garments, right? Did she? I mean, physically she did. She touched them. But who, what touched them? What touched them? Who touched them? What touched them? Who touched them? Her faith touched him. I know, I know you touched my garment, but your faith touched my heart. <laughs> Hundreds of hands touched Jesus, but only one with faith touched his heart. See, so when he said, who touched me, the obvious answer is everyone. Oh. But when he said, who touched me, there was a woman that was still probably on the floor because she got on the floor to get to him. 
and on the floor she recognized, I'm not bleeding anymore. I, I need you to understand that because I'm guessing when he stood up and said, who touched me? Everyone got scared because, oh my God, this is like the guy that brings dead people back to life. <laughs> so he could easily bring alive people into death. <laughs> so the Bible says everyone denied it. Oh, it wasn't me. And one woman comes crawling back to him on the floor, gets on his feet, looks up, and says, it was me. And from the moment that I touched you, I have not bled again. I've been made whole. That's crazy. Man, I want to just go off on that, but I know we have to go, so maybe I'll just say this. This woman, you have to understand her story. You have to, stand, you have to study the Old Testament. You have to study this community and how they see this old woman. You got to read through the Old Testament scripture and see that this woman, according to the law, is unclean. When a woman has a flow of blood, she's casted out. She's casted out in a sense like a leper is casted out. Anyone who touches the bed that she lays on is unclean as well. It's a very... Uh, straining process to make someone clean from touching her uncleanness you know I'm wondering why the Lord says you want to know what true religion is you guys think true religion is it might be something about finding a better let me not go there but it's being used in a certain way true religion is is the orphan is the widow and you're like, oh, it's, you're touching that which the world has despised. And true religion is, is embracing the despised one. That's true religion. So what's interesting about this woman is for 12 years she had a flow of blood. I, I need you to understand this. For 12 years, this lady, I, don't, I, don't, I, do, I do not think for once that she is just physically sick. I actually think she's mentally sick too. Because for 12 years, she's been separated from her family. If she had kids, she's separated from her kids. If she had a husband, she's separated from her husband. Let's say she never had kids, never had a husband. If she had parents that loved her and she loves them, she's separated from her parents. If she had a community that she loved to do life with, she's separated from the community that she loves to do life with. Not for one year, not for 12 months, but for 12 years, she is isolated and looked at as a woman with the flow of blood. That's, the cat. That's what people, what, saw her as and told her what she was. And one day Jesus walks into a town and all the people that thought that they were going to get some of Jesus missed it. But I'm coming into this town for the one that I'm seeing different. I, I, I get you see her like the woman with the flow of blood. But I don't see her like that. And when he says, who touched me, it was such a place of deliverance for this woman of acceptance again, welcome home again. Then it was for me to cast you out and rebuke you and condemn you again. I mean, can we go from story to story? Can we talk about the adulterous woman right now? We can talk about so many people in the New Testament. See, who touched me? He feels power leave her. He feels that faith touches him. And it was a faith. What did she say? She says this. If only I will touch his garments, I will be made well. If I could just touch Jesus, I have faith in this, that I'll be made well. Faith in Christ now 
And Jesus looks at her and look what it says. Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What is, what is, Jesus, what is Jesus imputing? What is Jesus crediting her for? What is Jesus accounting her for? Be of good cheer. What does he say? Your faith has made you what? You are what? You are what? Well. You are what? You are whole. You are well. You are what? You are what? You are right. But I've been wrong my whole life. No, you're right. But everyone says I'm wrong. No, you are right. Get up. You're right. You're right. The hundreds of hands touched me. They're wrong. But you touched me in a fashion that they could never touch me. Get up. You're right. Though you said you're wrong, though they said you're wrong, though your children have looked and their friends in the playground said, isn't that your mom over there by the gate looking at you? Like, yeah, don't look at her. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She's wrong. Everyone's said you're wrong. Everyone's walked around you and spit on you. You're wrong. But the Lord looked at her eyes that day and he tells her, who touched me? She says, it was me, Lord, because I believe that if I just touched you, I'll be made well. And he says, listen to me. You are whole now. Daughter, be of good cheer. Smile again. Find joy again because your life is made well and whole and complete and all of your wrong now has been made right what is Jesus giving her what is Jesus telling her let me give you now an imputation of my righteousness that could cause you now to stand up walk back to your house and claim it as yours I'm not getting kicked out anymore I'm not being spoken about anymore the Lord has made my wrongs right and I'm going to live in the righteousness of God. How are you going to do that? Because I touched him in faith and he touched me in power. All my wrong has been made right. I was right where he had me. Let me, let me explain it to you this way. The blood, the sickness, the infirmity which separated her for 12 years are you listening is used and flipped around on the enemy and on her to now draw her closer to Jesus and find him can I be very honest I'm wondering if that woman ever had that flow of blood if she would have ever touched them with such faith so some of you need to go through that process of nasty disgusting sickening shameful stories but that doesn't sound fair. We don't, we don't call God fair or unfair. Your story may be heart. It, it breaks your heart every day. You cry about that story every day. But I wonder, I wonder if it wasn't for that story, would you touch him with such a faith? So the very tool that had you broken and pain and isolated and feeling ashamed is the very tool now that he will use to bring you deeper into his glory. So that not only will your life be changed, but man, every other person that you do life before, their lives will be changed now. So God, why did you give me such a burden to carry? Don't worry, you're right where I have you. And that thing was given to you. And I'm wondering in this room, with these people right here, this family, can he use it to draw you closer to the Lord? Maybe that's the thing that you have... Maybe that's the last... Maybe that's where you're at. That's your last step. I don't know what else to do with this. Okay, how about let's, let's just come before the Lord and do this. Let's now use it to get us closer to the Lord. And then what? Let's watch him do what he's, only he can do. Because you've gone to every kind of counsel you've ever gone to. You've taken all kind of medicine that you could ever take. And, and keep going to the counsel and keep taking medicine. So 
but you've gone and you've done everything. But you've, maybe today God says, let this right here, where you thought was to break you, be the place where I'm going to take you in and I'm going to give you the righteousness that you need. I'm going to give you the healing that you need. You're going to find me. What in your life has been used as a tool to separate you from Jesus? But today you could turn it around to use it to draw you closer to Jesus. And what do I mean by that? Exactly what we've been speaking for weeks. To live in his righteousness. To live in right standing. But you got to get to a place where, where, that you could say this today. That you could say this. I am right where he has me. Come on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to, let's get into a, I believe you guys have a song, I'm sure. Let's get into a song here, but this is what I would love to do. If you know that you are right where he has you, and you need to just come before him and say, Lord, I'm like Job. I'm like Rahab. I'm like Joseph. I'm like Peter. I'm like Moses. I mean, we could go down the list. I'm like all these people in the scripture, Lord, who has, something has fallen on me. But Lord, that it would be used to destroy the plans of the enemies and that I would turn it around to give you glory in it. With it. In it and with it. That in this it would draw me closer to you and it would draw others closer to you. That all wrong today would be made right. That I would not look at this as a curse but that I look at this as man. Lord, I wouldn't change it and have it any other way. This is the greatest blessing that you have caused because look where I'm at today. Look where I'll be at tomorrow. Man, what I see for myself and what I think of myself is not what you see and what you think. Thank you, God, for that truth. Thank you for your righteousness. I want you to meditate on your heart. Let the team sing over us today. And as they sing, if that's you today and you know that, that God is speaking to you and you need him to make those wrongs right you're like that woman that touches him but not just for the sake of touching him but for the sake of saying if i could just touch him with this faith i know he can make my wrong right again i know i'm exactly where he has me because he wants me to draw closer to him i'm done here's my enough use it lord for your kingdom use it lord for your glory Come on, I want you to examine your heart. Let's sing to the Lord. If you need prayer and that's you, the altar is open. You could do that. Come up to the altar. If not, we'll close off in a few minutes and we'll pray together as a family. But if you feel like that woman of blood and you're like, I've been carrying this and today I want in Christ, I have faith in Christ to receive the righteousness of God. I am the righteousness of God. Like Romans said, in Christ Jesus, that's you today. You. You come up and become in Christ, in his presence, in his confirmation over you. You become God's righteousness through Jesus Christ today.